Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy Show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and for the next 30 minutes, we're going to take some time looking at stock market and financial planning issues. I want to start out by giving you a market review, and this data is as of the close on Friday, February 16th, 2018. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed at 25,219. The NASDAQ closed at 7,239. S&P 500 was at 2,732. Now, gold was at $1,349 an ounce, and oil was at $61.61 per barrel. I want to back up and just talk about what happened during the month of February in the stock market. So, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and for the sake of making this easy to follow on the radio, that's the only index we're going to talk about. It reached its high of 26000 617, and then at the low of its correction, it was 23,860. So that ended up being a 10.3% correction. And 10% corrections are incredibly common, they're normal to market behavior, and they don't necessarily represent anything to be worried about. Now, additionally, I said that the market is just a little over 25,000 right now, and it's already recovered about half of it. But I'm not really comfortable just saying that and not trying to look at some of the potential causes for why did the market go down. Well, one of the things is that it was just simply a normal market action. Remember that last year, the stock market just blew through all of the stops. And if you look at something called reversion to the mean or reversion to the average, it makes sense that we would give some of those gains back so that the long-term average of the stock market isn't really violated. There's some other things, though, that could have been at work. One of them was a way that people chose to invest. When markets are stable and steady, their volatility is lower. When markets get roiled, their volatility goes up. Now, the easiest definition of volatility is how spread out the returns are around the average return or the mean. So you have a mean, and then how widely do the returns tend to spread out? Obviously, the more wide they are, the more volatile the position is. The more narrow the returns are, the less volatile it is. But here's the secret. Volatility isn't static, and it can change dramatically depending upon what's going on in the markets, what's going on in the economy. So the volatility index called the VIX is a measure of this volatility. So, so far, so good, right? Everything makes sense. The problem came in when they decided to turn the VIX into an investment product so that people were literally trading, buying positions in volatility. So if you were short volatility, you thought there wasn't going to be any. 
if you were long volatility, you were expecting it. Well, because of the way the market's been acting, people were, for the most part, short volatility unless they were hedging and more sophisticated investors. The people who were short volatility probably really shouldn't have been there in the first place. But then when the volatility came back in, those funds exploded because not only were they tracking the volatility, they were doing it in multiples of two times volatility or three times volatility. One of the funds that tracked volatility lost 85% of its value in one day. Now, it's kind of an interesting story, but the point of this is don't ever invest in something you don't really understand, something that you're not sure why it's acting the way it is, just because it seems like it might be fun or it might be interesting, or even if it got referred to you by a financial advisor, as happened a while back in some sort of bad volatility trading that happened last year. Always understand what you own, understand how it works, and don't get in over your head on things that are too complicated. So the second possible reason for the market crashing is that it began to pay more attention to economic signals. There is a chance, as well as the economy is doing, that inflation could rise. As inflation rises, interest rates are likely to rise as well to help counter this. Remember that the Federal Reserve is charged with two things. They're supposed to keep employment levels high, so unemployment low, and they're supposed to control inflation. So if inflation really takes off, the Federal Reserve is more likely to act and raise interest rates, maybe at a rate higher than the market was anticipating. So in a weird way, the good economic data was bad for the market because it caused the market to reset its expectations. So if you're trying to come up with the economic cause, that probably played at least a role. Finally, we come to what I would like to call, what have you done for me lately? Remember that last year, the market got practically everything it could want from the Trump administration. It got less regulation. It got the tax cut. All of these things, whether we like them as consumers or not, really made the stock market happy. So the stock market increased by a lot. And as it looked like something would happen, the market would go up in anticipation of it. So now all of that good news is in the rearview mirror to the market. And I have to wonder, this is just my opinion, if the market isn't looking forward and it doesn't really see any more great adventures on the horizon, it doesn't really see what else it can get that it hasn't already gotten. And remember, if it's already gotten it, it's probably already priced it in for the most part. Now, if the tax cuts work the way they're explained and corporate profits rise, that could lead to continued market increase. I'm not saying the party's over, and I am not saying there will be a negative return this year in the market, and I am certainly not advising you to sell. I am simply saying I'm not sure what makes the market continue on the trajectory it was on and I'm kind of expecting things to be a lot more muted this year, there's a possibility that the correction is a foreshadowing of that. 
So you have products that were exploding because the people didn't know what they owned. You had um, economic data that was good, which means that interest rates are likely to rise, which is bad for the market. You have a market that's anticipated all of the good news, and finally it was just time. And I believe that if you wait average all of those things, that's probably a pretty good explanation of what went wrong without a lot of sense of direction of what we're expecting to happen next. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back. In this week's legislative update, the first thing that I want to talk about are the attempts to kill the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Remember, that's affectionately called the little agency that could. It's the Consumer Watchdog Agency. Well, they've done a lot of things to try to make it go away under the Trump administration, and now the latest is to not put it in the budget. Specifically, Mick Mulvaney, who is the new head of the CFPB, is wanting to absolutely gut the budget for the agency, claiming that it doesn't need the money. Well, of course it doesn't need the money if it isn't going to have the ability to go after the major financial institutions and try to help the consumers have control of their financial life. Well, the budget that's been proposed is not likely the budget that we're really going to get, and the funding of the CFPB might be all right, but it really doesn't look like it's going to be all right. So I'm thinking that there's a good chance that the Bureau is not going to be able to take the actions that it could, and that it will probably be much less effective than it had been prior to this time. So that's the first news of the week. The second news of the week is that the new administration is backing off the Equifax hack probe. Now, I talked about the Equifax hack on the first show. Remember, it happened last fall, and Equifax basically lost the personal financial information of millions of people. And the problem is with Equifax, it is the reporting agency that is one of the three agencies that helps you get your credit score. So it's not like you can opt not to do business with Equifax if you have any kind of credit history at all, a mortgage or a car payment or any sort of credit, which you have to have credit history. That means Equifax has your data and they lost it. So one of the things that everyone has said is what's going to happen to Equifax? Well, apparently nothing, because the same Mick Mulvaney from our last section that wants to get the CFPB also is not doing anything to pursue any action against Equifax for the hack. In fact, he's working to kill the probe into their massive data breach. So for now, it looks like probably consumers need to be very careful with their personal financial information. It's not likely that Equifax is going to be held accountable any time in the near future. If you don't know what's going on with your credit history, it's very important to request it. You can get a credit report each year 
for free without damaging your credit from the three major bureaus. Now, this won't give you a credit score, but it will give you what your credit history is and what you're looking for then are transactions that you didn't do, accounts that you didn't open, and if things look major, that's when you have to try to run it down and put everything back together again. But it looks like you'll be doing it without a lot of help from any kind of regulation. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. So in this session of Plan Your Prosperity, we're going to move away from some of the bad news in the last segment and talk about something more fun, something that's a little bit more uplifting than the conversation we were having. And I want to start out by asking you a question. Are you a dreamer? Do you like to imagine how things could be different if you just could accomplish a few things? When you're dreaming, do sometimes your dreams involve money? I mean, it might even be as easy as dreaming about winning the lottery or having the money to buy a vacation home or having the money to go on vacation. A lot of us sit around and we financially daydream and we don't really do anything about it. But that doesn't mean that dreams aren't important. In Native American cultures, dream catchers hang over the bed of the sleeping person, and the dream catchers have the job of catching the bad dreams while letting the good dreams go down to the individual. And I think it's really important to remember that it is important to have good dreams. Now, the less romantic name for a dream is a goal. But some things have to happen before dreams can become goals. I've had client meetings that want something like this. So I'll ask the client, how much money do you think you'll need in retirement? Client says, I want to be rich. Make me rich. Well, how much money does rich mean to you? Lots of money. How much money? Enough to make me rich. And we've just gone full circle and I have accomplished absolutely nothing to help this client actually plan their retirement because we don't have anything specific. Where dreams can be really vague, goals are specific. Goals have time horizons and dollar amounts and really concrete information behind them. Now, I'll tell you what's scary about goals is they require accountability. Dreams don't require accountability. It's easy to sit around and imagine how great it would be to, re to retire. It's a lot harder to actually put your shoulder to the grindstone and work to get there, to not buy everything you want right now so you can save some more money. So it's very, very difficult to do. But when you take the time and you get specific, the conversation goes a little bit more like this. How much money do you think you'll need in retirement? Oh, I don't know. I make $5,000 a month now and my expenses will drop a little. My house is going to be paid off and my wife and I would like to travel more. So I'm probably not going to live any less expensively. 
So do you think if we calculated under your current expenses, it would be about the right amount for your retirement? Yeah, I think so. And I want to retire in 10 years, so I've got some time to work this out. So do you see what we did? We have a time horizon. This client wants to retire in 10 years. This client wants roughly $5,000 in today's dollars each month to retire on. Now, this segment isn't really designed to help you figure out how much money that would be. There's other pieces to this that we would have to use then to create the math problem around how much money needed to be saved. But we have the beginning pieces. We know we have 10 years and we're going to need 5000 a month. So then we can look at other sources of income in retirement, maybe something like Social Security, look at current account balances, look at longevity assumptions, look at inflation, look at growth. But I can put this together now for a client and we can come up with a number that you need for retirement and it's a realistic number. It's not just a number that you've made up out of the sky. So how do you create this goal rather than the dream? Let's keep going for retirement for a minute, although this is really true for many different topics. The first thing you have to do to figure out how much money you're going to need in the future is figure out how much money you're spending today. That's your cash flow. So if you figure out how much money you're spending today, then that becomes the beginning of the gauge for how much money you'd need later. The financial planner you're working with can help you with the inflation adjustments to that and the growth assumptions of that. But that's your first task, is how much money do you spend today? And then how much or less do you think it will be when you get to the time that you need it? Then the next question is you have to choose a date. And it needs to be a realistic date. So in this case, the person wants to retire in 10 years. Maybe you're saving for college. It's the same concept. Maybe the child is six or seven years old, so you know you have about 11 years to meet your goal, and you can look to see what college costs today to get an idea of where you need to start and then inflate it by huge amounts of money going forward. So cash flow today and time horizon are the two principal pieces that you need to turn your dreams into goals and create a financial plan. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. So we're back to my favorite part of the show again, which is the Ask Peggy section. In this section, I take the questions that people give me and I try to provide some answers that hopefully can help them out as well as being interesting to other people. It's not investment advice. It's still educational because there's always a chance that that person has something in their life that makes my advice not work for them, but it gives you some guidelines and some things to think about. If you want to ask me a question, you can go to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and type something in, and I'll address it on one of our shows. So the first question today is, Hi, Peggy. How do I determine my risk tolerance level? And I want to begin this answer by saying this is 
much more complicated than people tend to think that it is. Remember that by a textbook definition, risk tolerance is defined as your capacity and your ability to take risk. So risk is usually defined as how is the portfolio invested. So a more risky portfolio probably has more stocks, equities, maybe other kinds of investments, and fewer fixed income and more stable kinds of investments. While a conservative portfolio would probably have more bonds and fixed styles of investments and less stock and equity. So we, you know, we usually get like a five-question questionnaire and we answer the questions and we kind of know how we're supposed to answer the questions as we look at them. So we create a, a risk tolerance level for ourselves, and the portfolio gets invested. And then that works right until everything just begins blowing up. So I want to say that part of your risk tolerance level needs to be your ability to sleep at night. If you are just losing your mind because you're going crazy all the time and you're very stressed out, your risk tolerance level might be too high. Now, it also might help you be less stressed if you talked to your financial planner and tried to really understand your investments more. Because we stress about things we don't understand. We also stress about things that are really, really stressful. So as you're trying to decide if your stress level should impact your risk tolerance level, give yourself some slack. Try to learn what's going on. Really understand the investments. Your planner should be happy to help you do this. And if they're not, that might be something else. But you really need to try to get educated. But if you're still just not sleeping at all, it might be a little bit too high. Additionally, situations in your life will make you more or less risk tolerant depending on how you react to stress. So in the case of someone dying or a divorce or some other odd windfall of money or money associated with some kind of traumatic event, you may be much more conservative than average because you may be basically fearful about what's going on or you may have so much bravado going on trying to get through this and be okay that you have a crazy high aggressive risk tolerance level. The problem is you're neither of these people and your actual risk tolerance level may be somewhere altogether different. So try to avoid setting risk tolerance levels when you're really stressed. If you have to set it, make sure it's something that can change later and look at it again. Look at it in six months. Look at it in a year. In fact, you should always look at your risk tolerance level every year or two to make sure that nothing in your life has changed because circumstances change, situations change, you know, financial levels change, and a lot of times, People don't think to go in and change their risk tolerance. They know that they have all this drama in their life, but it doesn't carry forward into going and calling your financial planner and having a meeting and making sure that everything's still on track. Now, 
Having said that you want to be careful that you don't get your risk tolerance level off the chart, there's another side to this that has to be discussed. So let's assume that you started saving for your retirement when you're 30. And really, I've seen those numbers too. If you just started in your 20s, you could be a millionaire by the time you're 50. Unfortunately, most of us just didn't have the money in our 20s to be able to start saving for retirement. A lot of people don't get going until they're 30. Now assume that you have a career that's absolutely stable and you contribute to a retirement plan for 35 years and you retire at 65. Very normal, very average. Now, here's where the problem comes in, or perhaps it's a good thing, depending on your perspective. You could live another 35 years. With longevity the way it is today and the cures to diseases and people's healthy lifestyles, access to good medical care, living 35 years to the age of 100 is not the insane assumption that it used to be. People didn't used to live this long, but today it's very possible you're in retirement for as many years as you contributed to your retirement plan. And without doing any math at all, that can create a scary situation if you didn't save a lot of money. So what does that do to your risk tolerance level? Well, one thing it might do is cause you to put some money in something more conservative for a few years of that retirement. Remember that when stock markets crash, the broad market is typically back within seven years. Now, sectors don't always come back that fast. Single stocks sometimes never come back. Sectors can get in a lot of trouble. They can take a long time to come back too. But broad market investments are usually back within seven years. So rather than creating one risk tolerance level for your entire portfolio, you might consider splitting it into sections so that you would have something more conservative if the market went kerflui, that's the official word of the day, and then have more growth in the rest of it. In any case, this is a complicated problem, and you need to talk to your planner, and you need to have a conversation to figure out what you can do so that your money lasts as long as you live and you have a happy retirement. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. So I have time for one more quick question, which is, Peggy, how do I know how my financial advisor is paid? Well, remember, all financial professionals are paid somehow. Maybe it's through a commission or an hourly fee or a retainer, some kind of a hybrid model of all of those. Some products have trails where the advisor gets paid an amount even after the sale is made. So we're not so much concerned that people are getting paid, it's how much and how are they getting paid. And the easiest answer is to ask them. And also look up on regulatory websites like FINRA or your local state regulator site. Now, when you ask the question, be really careful how you ask it, because sometimes the companies that create products actually pay the advisors directly, and then that fee gets carried on to you through something like a surrender fee or an annual fee, and it kind of varies in. So you want to ask the advisor, 
who has paid you for this product from any source? Not just money I've paid, but how else have you gotten paid for this? And how much did you receive for it? Now, this is going to be an awkward conversation, and not every advisor is going to want to answer it. In fact, some companies tell the advisors they can't say how much compensation they received. But I'm not really inclined not to want to hold their feet to the fire, because typically you should have an invoice, you should know how much was paid, you should know the service that was provided, and then you decide if that amount of money is reasonable compensation for what they did. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.